Welcome to episode six of the Half Point Per Podcast. I'm your host, Evan Riggs, joined as always by my co-host, Dalton Willie, and producer, Johnny Pham. This week, we're going to preview the AFC. Uh, we picked one team from each division, similar to last week. But the main difference this time is, I promise you, we will get this done in one podcast. It's going to be the Bengals, Colts, Broncos, and Dolphins today. And actually, Dalton, I know I usually start with you, but Johnny, I want to know, what's going on with the knee, bud? We got off to a late start. You had to go buy a knee brace. You, you're talking about maybe missing some podcasts for knee surgery. This is, a, this is a lot going on, man. What's going on? Are you, you doubtful for next week? Oh, man. I, I kind of thought you guys would forget and not uh, put me on the spot during the pod, but I did partially tear my patella tendon i think that's called mm-hmm. uh med school student uh dozy and fellow league mate uh diagnosed me through facetime yesterday and i said <laughs> it looked like a partial tear so uh had to get a brace on it and uh it kind of hurts yeah no i bet well get well soon but if you have to to miss a couple podcasts that'd be a real shame yeah it would, it would be a real shame but uh we're, we're just gonna power through uh dozy just said to ice it rest for a couple days and just doesn't bruise up, then no surgery should be required. Dalton, zero knee injuries as of now for you. How are you doing today? <laughs> I'm doing good. I'm not going to be going on the PUP or anything lately. <laughs> uh, I just saw our boy Mahomes got robbed by the NFL Top 100, got put at number four. So this podcast is going to be a little triggered the, the whole way through. Yep, you are correct about that. And we are actually going to start with the Chiefs. Uh, the news of the day, we're recording this on Wednesday. News of the day is Damian Williams opts out um, due to COVID-19 concerns. We don't really know any more than that. He didn't cite family or medical or anything like some other guys, but we just know he's not playing for this season. I think we all know what that means, though. That means the Clyde Edwards-Hilaire hype train is speeding up. It is on a downhill slope, and it is not slowing down anytime soon. I put up a Twitter poll earlier today. Um to ask if he should be a first round pick. And last I looked, that was the pretty resounding um, result. So I'll ask you, Dalton, do you think uh, CEH is now a first round pick in fantasy football? Oh boy. Is CEH <laughs> a first round pick? As you know, in our league, we don't draft for another month. And I just traded up two spots in the first round to attempt to get him at pick number seven. On the first pod we had, I had two primary concerns about CEH. The first was he would be at a timeshare with Damian Williams. That is out of the way. So my first concern is gone. And then with a little more research, I found through Roto Street that uh, the Chiefs and LSU had run very similar zone schemes. So there's a lot of similar uh, similarities between the two. And more importantly, uh, Roto World reported on July 26th that you know, contrary to social distancing and all of that, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire had gotten a lot of work in with Patrick Mahomes over the summer. So the two have been working together. Um, he came out and said that the Chiefs playbook was one of the easiest playbooks. He's yeah, ever he had heard. a pretty confident sounding press conference when he did his first Zoom presser earlier this week. Yeah. So, I mean, all systems go. I'm going to conduct this train. <laughs> I, I have Clyde Edwards Hilaire. I moved him all the way up to my running back five, overtaking Joe Mixon and right behind Alvin Kamara. And uh, I can see an argument to be made that he can be drafted with the top four guys just with the the high upside and touchdown potential of the Chiefs offense. Yeah, so I have him right now. I haven't actually moved my rankings yet. Need to update them, honestly. But 
right now, I, I agree with you. I would have him at RB5, just ahead of Dalvin Cook. If Cook signs a deal before the season, then I might have to reassess, rethink that, or at least it'll be a tougher decision. But just with the risk that's there with Cook, we talked about that at length uh, the other day. I think CEH uh, number five makes a lot of sense for me. And I'll even listen to arguments for him as high as RB3. Where you'll lose me is I you can't get him in the Saquon CMC tier, I don't think yet. And I'm not saying I would take him over Zeke, but like if you want to tell me you would, I can't get mad at it. I don't hate it, you know? The receiving potential that he has with Patrick Mahomes is just significantly higher than Zeke. Um, obviously, Zeke's going to be a better rusher, hands down. Uh, one thing I did find interesting is since he entered the league, Patrick Mahomes has the highest QB rating when targeting running backs. So he's a guy who really takes all the value out of that. And Clyde Edwards-Hilaire is probably going to face some of the least stacked boxes with those weapons the Chiefs have on the outside. Yeah. He's got to get a lot of one-cut looks upfield and see two or three linebackers at most. Um, Some of them probably playing deeper just to cover for the speed concerns and Travis Kelsey. Uh, So it's an exciting development for fantasy. You know, I feel like usually early in the season, it's always negative news coming out of camp. You know, your preseason darling is going to be third on the roster. Um, But this (laughs) is one of those times that for fantasy drafters, it's a much clearer position and it's a very exciting player in a year where running back is very thin. Clyde Edwards Hilaire looks to be like one of the top guys. Yeah, and I just want to say before we get too far into this, so we both moved him up to fifth. Um, before this, I had him 10 and you 17. So we were pretty different on him before. Now we both feel very much the same. Um, so that should, and I think pretty much everybody else um, agrees for the most part. I've seen pretty much all top five, top six um, all around the industry on on social media and whatnot today. So just looking back at Kareem Hunt, and it's kind of funny. The history is kind of repeating itself, different situations. But yeah, Spencer Ware tears his ACL, and all of a sudden it's Kareem Hunt. Kareem Hunt ends up a, a second or third round pick, depending on when you drafted. That season, Hunt had 272 carries and 53 receptions as a rookie. Do we? Th- and so that's basically like, what, 325 total touches? Over or under that for CEH? Oh, that's a tough question. Um, I think we're going to hit the under slightly. The, the difference in that is that Kareem Hunt was playing at a different offense. I know mm-hmm. they were Andy Reid coached, but it was Alex Smith. Sure. Um, so I do. I would take the under on that. I would put him closer to the 280 mark. But the bigger value in it is the, the quality of those touches. I think there's going to be more goal line upside, a lot more touchdown potential. Um, so I'd say he'd have a better season fantasy scoring than Kareem Hunt, but I think he's going to be more efficient doing it thanks in part to Patrick Mahomes leading the offense and the ability for him to not be one of the guys that gets keyed in on. Mm -hmm. Well, and he, on top of just being a better prospect coming out of college, I mean, first round pick versus was what a third round pick, I think off the top of my head. So just a little bit of a different tier of prospect. Number one, number two, 53 receptions is obviously, especially for a rookie. That's very good. But last year in college, CEH had 55 receptions, like in college, like that's just, that's unheard of. I mean, and it wouldn't be shocking to me to see him. I, I'm taking the under on the total touches, but he's going to have the higher value touches. The You mentioned maybe more goal line. We're going to see more receiving and not just dump downs. And this is what we talked about or what I talked about on our first pod when we debated him. He runs the whole route tree. I mean, he runs corner routes. He runs advanced routes. And just to put in the perspective, because I know it's kind of tough to compare college to NFL receptions, to put in the perspective how incredible 55 receptions is in college, 
Saquon Barkley, his last year at Penn State, 54 receptions. Christian McCaffrey's um, most that he had in college at Stanford, 45. And that guy's you know the best pass catcher in the NFL at running back bar none. So this is a guy that had 10 more receptions than, than that guy in college. Just, I think the upside, and I have this question written down, and I want to I want to know what your answer is. Does he have the upside now to be the RB1? Because I think he is in that group of five or six guys that I can see being the RB1 this year. I definitely think he has the upside of being the RB1. I mean, you have guys like Mike Clay and Davis Maddock giving him a season where he has 1,400 total yards and close to 14 touchdowns in their projections. And those are absurd numbers. Um, and for a rookie, it's even crazier. More importantly, if we get Patrick Mahomes two years ago, which is completely not out of the question with no injury concerns, we're going to have a season where he can come close to 55 touchdowns. And it's not outside of the realm of projections for Clyde Edwards to Hilaire to benefit and get close to 18 or 19 touchdowns in that offense. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think Mark Ingram had close to 17 last season uh, in a similarly high powered attack. So you can see the upside in it because of the touchdown projections, but additionally, the passing game is going to work so well for him. Uh, looking at pro football focus, they said that he's one of the most versatile backs when it comes to being matched up against linebackers, specifically because his route running is so crisp and clean. And it's just a scary thing when you have a Sammy Watkins, Michael Hardman, Tyreek Hill, and Travis Kelsey on the field, and now you have to deal with uh, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire. He's a guy who's going to be getting a lot of one-on-one matchups, and there's really nobody in that backfield competing for those touches from him. Well, and he's probably never going to even get the best pass-covering linebacker on him because that's going to be probably on Kelsey unless they have a a, a safety who can try and cover Kelsey, you know? So, And I don't even know if I mentioned that um, Hunt was RB4 that rookie year in in half-point PPR. So just a, a little perspective on that. Real quickly before we move on from the Chiefs, uh, so the other guys, Darwin Thompson, Darrell Williams, and DeAndre Washington, if you had to pick one of those guys, is there anybody out of those three that you're kind of taking a late-round flyer on? Because, I mean, obviously two Chiefs are going to be drafted at least. Um, or do you buy more into the fact that maybe they'll bring somebody else in? Well, real quick before we jump into that, the last thing I wanted to get on Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, uh, Vegas has him at 4-1 to odds to win the rushing title, um, mm-hmm. just to keep him in that conversation for top five. But as far as it goes for late round targets out of that Chiefs offense, I'm taking DeAndre Washington. I think Darwin Thompson and Daryl Williams both got their opportunities last year to shine, and they they weren't overly impressive. There were a couple of good pass catching moments from Daryl, but overall they weren't guys who really lit up the, the scoreboard. Um, DeAndre Washington, however, in his three starts when Josh Jacobs was unable to play last season, had 18, 20, and 21 fantasy points. Yeah, so I, start, I started him in my fantasy final matchup. Yeah, he's a guy who could really put up good numbers, um, and he's talented in and of himself. So if there's anybody in that offense that I'd take a flyer on who's probably going to get looks, it's DeAndre Washington because he's one of those dual-purpose backs who can run the ball and catch the ball. Yeah, you mentioned it. I agree with you. He's a versatile back, and we obviously know that that's the kind of back that thrives under Andy Reid and not this probably matters but he does have the Mahomes familiarity they were teammates in college so he at least has that going for him I you know I'd say you know we talked a little bit about this before you know are they going to bring in like a Devontae Freeman or Lamar Miller 
um, anybody like that. I think the most likely scenario, uh, LaShawn McCoy, and I think the most likely scenario is you bring in McCoy and he's basically just a guy in the running back room and he doesn't really play. That's kind of what I see happening there. But, okay, we can move on from that real quickly before we jump into the teams. I did want to get to one more um, news item, well, maybe two. Just mention real quick that Kenny Galladay is on the COVID-exempt list. So, you know, there is that. That is out there. Um, the second thing that I think is growing more interesting by the day the reports from Ian Rappaport of NFL Network are that the 49ers and George Kittle are, quote, not particularly close on a contract extension. And this could be a coincidence or maybe not. It comes out on the same day that um, Roto World has a blurb that they've spoken with Jordan Reed and Delaney Walker. Uh, that could just be the bring them in for a backup role or I don't know, maybe they're bracing for, for a George Kittle holdout. I just think that risk is maybe kind of been bubbling under the surface for a while than something that we at least have to, you know, we've acknowledged it with Dalvin Cook and a little bit with Joe Mixon, and now I think it's there with uh, George Kittle a little bit. Yeah, um, it's something that I'm going to watch my rankings on. Obviously, I have George Kittle over Travis Kelsey, but if this continues, probably going to bump him down. Uh, more importantly, it's just dumb by the San Francisco front <laughs> office. Yes. He's the 70th highest paid tight end in the NFL, and he's probably the most efficient blocker in the NFL at the tight end position and the second best receiving tight end in the NFL. Uh, the guy deserves his. They need to pay him. He can be a cornerstone piece for that franchise. And in a season with COVID and everything else going on, I could see him sitting out and using that as a very good excuse. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, one thing that maybe we'll touch on later is the prospect of guys reporting, but, you know, fake reporting, reporting, but they're not really, they're, they're still sitting out. They're still holding out for their deals. Um, but let's go ahead and hop into the AFC teams. And like I said, we're going to, we're going to zoom through these one podcast. We're going to start with probably the worst one in the Miami dolphins. Dalton, they were your idea to talk about, but you weren't too thrilled. Once you actually started digging in 2019, they were five and 11, the 2020 over under is six and a half wins Dalton over under six and a half wins. Um, well, I got a Prozac prescription for my doctor after researching the Miami Dolphins because I'm <laughs> depressed. Uh, but I'm taking the under. There's no chance they're winning seven games. Uh, there's no chance they're winning six games. I would be surprised if they win five games. Uh, pro football focus has them at the 31 graded offensive line. Uh, you have a quarterback quote-unquote controversy between Fitzpatrick and Tua. Tua. Um, in all honesty, those are two guys who you probably just want Fitz to run the season out because if not, Tua is going to be getting hit a lot. Uh, it's not an overly exciting quarterbacking room this year because of the poor offensive line, um, but Fitz magic on the field can do some things that I think Tua is still a, at least you know a couple of years behind being able to do. Um, but more importantly, we've seen what happens to quarterbacks behind bad offensive lines. They turn into Sam Bradford and Josh Rosen, um, and they just lose They lose whatever they had coming into the NFL, and it's probably better for Tua to learn from a vet, especially with the shortened preseason we have this year. So I'm going to agree and take the under. I'm not probably as down on them as you are, it sounds like. I am just going to say thank you for not putting us through you trying to say Tua's last name. You almost got there, and then you realized it wasn't a good idea. So proud of you, bud. I'm very lucky Google Docs knows his name and spells it for me when I type it out. <laughs> I think I used to know how to say his name. Now I don't know if I do. College football is too long ago, so not not going to try. Everybody knows who Tua is. So, And we can actually start with him. So the reason why I put the Dolphins first is because until CEH, the, the big news of the day, in my opinion, was Tua. Um, their head coach, Brian Flores, told reporters on Wednesday 
that he passed his physical and will be able to practice, quote, without limitations, which is great news for the number five overall pick of this year's draft. He obviously had the very, very significant uh, hip injury at Alabama that, I mean, I think I think we were worried that was a career ender when it happened. So good to see that he's back on the field, going to be going with no no restrictions. And people kind of forget, I feel like he was the guy, you know, it was Tank for Tua before Joe Burrow became Joe Burrow. So I'm curious what you're going to be paying attention to just in regards to Tua and the storylines coming out uh, with him, with him in regards to his connection with the weapons, anything like that as training camp unfolds. In all honesty, and I thought pretty hard about this, it, it seems like something to nitpick on. And I know I've said this a lot, but with a shortened off season, one of the big concerns with Tua isn't just knowing the playbook. It's that he's left-handed. And you have to get your skill position players adapted to a left-handed quarterback. It may seem small, but I went back and looked up uh, quotes on Kellen Moore and Michael Vick, and all of their receivers have gone out and said it's much more difficult to play in that and that the playbooks are drastically altered um, just because of how the looks the quarterback gets are going to be because of how the ball comes at the player. You really want your pass catchers getting up the reps with that. I know it seems small. But it's one of those things that at the end of the day, I'm going to watch for how his receivers are adapting to his throws. Um, and then secondly, uh, I just need to see whether or not what Ryan Fitzpatrick has one more career season in him. Uh, <laughs> he was positively graded by pro football focus the last two years. Uh, he's actually been an above average quarterback. And, you know, that offensive line, uh, Fitzpatrick faced the fourth highest pressure rate in the NFL and still came out positively graded is probably a good thing for him, uh, but it's not something you want to put Tua under for his decision-making in the future and for his injury history. You don't want him under that offensive line this year. Okay, so real quick, let me give my short Tua spiel, and then I want to get into the Fitzpatrick versus Tua. Um, Obviously, number one, health is the first thing. We kind of have that cleared up. We'll obviously be watching for any setbacks, any limitations, anything like that, but I think number one, and this isn't the case with most players, but I'm going to be paying close attention to how they say he's looking. I want to see those fluff reports. He's building great chemistry with Preston Williams, with Devontae Parker, with Mike Gusecki, because I feel like that's more important than ever for a rookie and especially for him. I mean, you mentioned the lefty thing. I think that is maybe a small factor and just also the guy hasn't been healthy. So I, I just want to see, I want to see them say Tua looks great, basically, is what is what I want to see. But as far as Tua versus Fitzpatrick, I'm curious then, who do you think, who would you, if you're just, you're really not counting on either quarterback this year, probably, as a fantasy option, unless it's a streamer later in the year, whatever. But if you're just, caring about their weapons who would you rather see as the starting quarterback oh ryan fitzpatrick and we can get into this uh but chan gailey's the new offensive coordinator in town chan gailey was the same offensive coordinator with fitzpatrick and the jets with brandon marshall and eric decker um and there are some pretty interesting comps he talked about between the receiving weapons he has which i'm sure we'll jump into here in a bit um, but Ryan Fitzpatrick is a pleasure to watch play football. Him and Jameis Winston just throw the ball like their backyard with their boys. And you I can't get enough of that. <laughs> you have a type, clearly. Yeah, Josh Allen, you know, you know my type of NFL. So, okay. I think that Fitzpatrick, and I'll get into this. Maybe, okay. We can just kind of lump Devontae Parker into this now. Because I think Fitzpatrick being the starter is better for one guy and that Devonte parker because Devonte parker he pretty much needs someone who's gonna be a, a yellow throw it force it in 
last year, I think I have it somewhere. His his um contested catch rate was a just above fifty one percent, and he had the most contested catches in the NFL. Um, for a guy like Kenny Galladay, who had the most contested catch yards in the NFL, that's what you expect. That's his skill set. He's proven it. For a guy like Parker, who has been such an, an enigma, I don't know if I feel as comfortable with saying that that's going to repeat no matter the quarterback. So you want the quarterback who's going to just basically play dumb and and force it in, hone in on that guy no matter what. I think otherwise, the all those other weapons, they would just benefit from a better offense than a better player. And I think Tua gives them a chance for a better NFL offense, and he's a better player. And I don't know how you feel about Tua long-term, but I mean, me personally, I, I like him better than Kyler Murray. I wouldn't be surprised if in three years um, we're talking about the top five quarterbacks being Mahomes, Deshaun, Russ, Joe Burrow, and Tua. I mean, I really think that Burrow and Tua are that level of prospect. Not saying it's going to happen, but I think it could. I think Tua's talented. I wouldn't go as far as to say what you said. I could see um, Tua being a top 12 quarterback in a couple of years in the NFL, um, but I'm going to give that in part because the Dolphins organization has been so smart to acquire so many draft picks in the mm-hmm. coming years. He's um, going to have help coming. Yeah, he is. And they did well this year to acquire some talent at the, the offensive tackle position as well. So I think their front office is smart. And I think Brian Flores is actually a good coach. Um, even though last year, I think he just had a very difficult situation. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we're about halfway through um, our Dolphins allotted time here. So let's move on to Devontae Parker. I mentioned the contested catch, all of that. Last year was the the late breakout, I guess. I mean, the guy was, like I said, he made you miserable for his first three years. Last year, 72 receptions for just over 1,200 yards and nine touchdowns. That's more than his previous two seasons yardage-wise combined by a pretty decent margin, actually, too. That was wide receiver seven and half-point scoring by season's end. In weeks 10 through 17, he was the wide receiver two behind only Michael Thomas and pretty comfortably ahead of A.J. Brown. Like He was pretty much on island, 20 points behind Michael Thomas, 20 points ahead of A.J. Brown. Are you surprised at all that his fantasy pros consensus ranking is wide receiver 25? And do you think that's correct or incorrect? Well, I think it's incorrect. And I'll go ahead and jump into this. Uh, I own Devontae Parker to end the last year. He had a great end of the year. He had like four 100-yard games, mm-hmm. one two-score game. Uh, he had the 17th best receiving grade in the NFL last year. Uh, but if you jump into the numbers, there's a very key metric as to where he succeeded, and it's when Preston Williams got injured. So before Preston Williams' injury, he had 3.6 catches per game and 52 yards a game and had a total of 469 receiving yards. After Preston Williams' injury, he had 6.4 catches per game, 104 yards per game, and 730 total yards throughout that. All of his accruement came in a span of about seven weeks where they didn't have a second receiving option. Additionally, Albert Wilson was out for this season, who is a great separation guy. He doesn't Mm -hmm. get a lot of respect for that. Uh, I think Devontae Parker is a good player. He's not a great fantasy element. I think you can kind of lump him into a boomer bust player. Um, There's a lot of uncertainty around that offense too. And with a bad offensive line, it's very interesting to see a guy whose primary primary, skill set is deep targets. That's where he excelled last season. So when you're looking at him going around guys like Terry McLaurin, DK Metcalf, Keenan Allen, and T.Y. Hilton, Stefan Diggs, 
I don't see how he's being drafted that highly other than a recency bias to the end of the season. Mm-hmm. So it's a little, I'm actually, I'm pleasantly surprised. I was thinking that we were going to come into this season with people arguing for him as like a top 15 receiver, which has not been the case. So number one, uh, I'm happy about that. Number two, I, I just say by his ranking, I don't think anybody thinks last year's breakout was completely real. It's like everyone kind of has one toe in. Like it, it was kind of real, but not really. Like we don't think he can do that again, but we think he'll be okay. Um, and I think that I mean, of course, that's really just because of all of the scars that <laughs> that there are with <laughs> when it comes to Devontae Parker. I mean, he's been a guy who you've probably not you specifically, but you in general, the listener, um, has probably taken him in the fourth round. And it probably crushed your team if you did that. And maybe not just once, maybe maybe a second time you believed in the guy too and took him in the seventh round. So I think if this were his like third season and we, we had this progression to now, we'd all feel differently. But just with, with everything that has gone on in this guy's career, he's just somebody that unless he falls, I'm probably not going to have on my team. He did obviously improve. He was the spring team MVP last year and then actually kind of translated that onto the field, which, you know, great for him. And I think it. I have seen that one of the reasons why he maybe made an improvement is he finally quit eating like crap. He finally started taking care of his body and things of that nature. So who knows? Maybe he has turned a corner, but I think I'm going to be okay on missing out on another big Devontae Parker season. That That's just my personal belief. I agree. But there is a wide receiver on that team who I think is horrendously underrated. Yeah, you get into it. And that is Preston Williams, who is currently going as the wide receiver 49. You can get him around the end of the draft. Um, He's not on the PUP from his ACL injury. That would have been reported yesterday. So that means he's going to probably start out on the active roster, be able to practice in in contact. Mm -hmm. Um, 32 catches, 428 yards, six touchdowns was his line before he got injured through nine weeks. Overall, it was pretty good considering that they had a couple of Josh Rosen games mixed in there. Um, but Chan Gailey compared him to Eric Decker. I talked about that a bit earlier. If if he does what Eric Decker did in the Jets offense, he's going to be a touchdown machine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's something that's very exciting to me. Uh, but I think we can probably uh, wrap this up with talking about the running backs a bit. Yeah, just real quick. Um, Mike Gasicki is is a guy at tight end. Had over 500 yards last year, five touchdowns. No matter who the quarterback is, I do like he's tight end 11 last year, and he's being drafted in a similar spot um, at this time. I don't know if the breakout is necessarily kind of like a full on breakout is coming, but he is the type of guy that you like to take the chance on tight end, big, fast, and he's gonna have weapons on the outside that give him plenty of room on the inside. So I, I like Gesicki where he's at, and I can see him being a late-round tight end guy. But Matt Breida and Jordan Howard. So Howard on Fantasy Pros is RB33, um, Breida 37. Uh, just point blank, really, because I don't think either. I don't think we're too thrilled with either of these guys. But if you have to pick one, who are you taking? Oh well, that was a question I was going to ask you. Uh, <laughs> but at the end of the day, I'm going to go with Jordan Howard. Uh, here's why: the Dolphins and for the last five years have had the worst run blocking grade. Uh, Jordan Howard has an average of 2.8 yards per contact after contact. Matt Breida uh, was second highest in the NFL with 4.9 yards of carry, but also averaged 2.4 yards before contact. So Jordan Howard is a guy that can get it done after getting touched. Matt Breida isn't a guy that's proved to me he can get it done before he's touched. At the end of the day, Jordan Howard's like coach's catnip. 
for some reason people love him. He gets those goal line looks and he'll get you a solid three to four yards. Uh, but fantasy wise, if I have to draft a guy, it's Jordan Howard because I know he's going to be the one at the goal line and he'll probably get a better run differential when it comes to accruing yards after getting touched. Mm-hmm. And I'll wrap up with this real quick. Um, I've gone back and forth on this. I will take Jordan Howard, although I do think Brita's style, his ability to pop big plays, and just as a player, I think he is better. I think he maybe fits better with that offense, like what you think of um, with that offense, kind of big play um, potential. And Jordan Howard kind of being a grinder is, is kind of, it just kind of doesn't fit with the rest of that offense. But I do feel safer about the workload. I feel safer about the health, quite frankly. Brita is always getting banged up, even just on a game-by-game basis. But I think if I'm in the situation where I'm light on running back through a, through a couple rounds and or I have a running back who's really high risk, then I'm okay taking Jordan Howard as a as a safe bench guy. But otherwise, I'm probably just avoiding this situation. Yeah, I would agree. It's definitely a do not draft uh, backfield. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's move on to probably the most exciting rookie and um, at least quarterback wise in in the Bengals and uh, Joe Burrow. So the Bengals last season, it was a struggle. It was a real struggle. They won the race to the bottom for Joe Burrow in convincing fashion. Not really, but they did win it. Um, they were two and 14 last season. Their 2020 over under is five and a half Dalton over under real quick. I'm going to take over it's coaching consistency improvements. The offensive line with Jonah Williams, definite improved quarterback play, at the moment, it appears they're going to have all their weapons ready to play. Uh, and most importantly, I think Joe Burrow is good enough to win you seven games. Mm-hmm. I, boy, it, this is tough because they play in a very tough division. I think I'm going to take the under, and I think I think if they were in a different division, I would, I would, I'd be inclined to take the over. I think they're going to be a fun team. I think they're going to be pretty decent. They're not going to be good, but they're going to be, they're going to be fun. They're going to win some games, but. Just, I mean, that division, you play those defenses with that offensive line um, twice each. Tough for me seeing them racking up too many wins. Um, We'll start with easily the most fantasy-relevant guy um, for our purposes on this roster in Joe Mixon. Last season, and we talked about him a little bit last week. Last season, Joe Mixon, 278 carries, just over 1,100 yards, five touchdowns, and then he had 35 catches for nearly 303 touchdowns. And as I mentioned last week in the buy-sell, that is with games of 10, 17, 10, and 2 as rushing totals. He was the RB13 entering this season as the 31st rate offensive line um, per pro football focus are the Bengals. He did have 130 or, or more rushing yards in three of his last four games. And in that, he was the RB3. Right now, he's being drafted or being ranked by fantasy pros consensus as the RB7. Dalton. How are you feeling about Joe Mixon entering this season? I'm feeling great. Until about two hours ago, he was my RB5. Now he's my RB6. Here's the thing. I think Joe Mixon is very undervalued by the fantasy community uh, because he doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, he's not a big reception guy, which is where you get a lot of your value. Um, But more importantly, he is one of the six running backs in over the last two years to command 500 touches and 100 targets. And... He's hit, you know, the end zone 15 or more times. Uh, Like you've touched on, and I'll dress a little more, the last eight games of last season, he was on pace for 386 touches, almost 2,000 yards, 
and 10 touchdowns. This is a contract year for Joe Mixon in an offense that's looked to be substantially improved. Uh, and most importantly, Jonah Williams, their offensive tackle, comes back. I know they're ranked at 31st, but they have a lot of room to go forward with that. And if he gets even a modicum better of an offensive line, he's going to be a guy who can create so much in space. Uh, and last but not least, there's nobody behind him who's going to take away those rushing touches. You got Bernard Williams and Rodney Anderson. The only tar- the only concern there is that Giovanni Bernard takes a bit of his uh, pass game share. But even then, like I said earlier, it's one of the few backs to have 500 touches and 100 targets over two seasons. He's He does it all, and he does it all well. Mm-hmm. The concern obviously starts with the offensive line, and it's so hard to know year to year how an offensive line is going to be but i mentioned the games of 10 17 10 and two rushing yards that was all in the first half of the season um he was the rb 34 in weeks one through seven last year so if you drafted them you hung on to him and you started him every game he probably dug you a pretty big hole so you worry maybe a little bit about that that's probably really the only concern you feel good about the workload all the stuff you mentioned he's not going to see as stacked of a box the situation is just flat out better with Burrow, with the weapons, with all that. I will say with his holdout, so we haven't really talked about him much. We've mainly talked about Cook. For me, I think I honestly have about the same level of concern as I do with Dalvin Cook. And I haven't adjusted any rankings yet. I'm going to wait until we know more, like I said last week. but So this is from the Ringer's Guide to Training Camp on how holdouts are going to work. Obviously, everything is just up in the air at this point. But... So under the language agreed upon by the new CBA and the reported opt-out provision, players automatically lose an accrued season toward free agency if they don't report to their team on time. So as former Jets GM Mike Tannenbaum notes, players like Dalvin Cook, Joe Mixon, and George Kittle, who we just talked about, may elect to, quote, hold in rather than hold out as training camp starts up. Essentially, they'd report to camp but refuse to practice in order to gain leverage uh, toward a new deal. So I just think, again, like those other two guys, that's going to be something we have to to monitor. That's going to be an August headache for sure. So that's out there. That risk is there. And yeah, I don't know. Assuming no holdout and it doesn't bleed into the season, he's no doubt or top six or seven guy for me. But that risk is definitely there in my opinion. Well, when it comes to Joe Mixon, I do see a little bit of a difference between Dalvin Cook and George Kittle. Um, Both those front offices have had reports leaked that they're not close to a deal. Uh, Back in May, Duke Tobin, who's the director of player personnel, said extending Mixon is a top priority after they take care of A.J. Green, who had a July... Well, but but the Niners have said they want to give Kill a deal, too. I mean, um, Lynch just went on the radio and said that that they want to do that. So I'm sure they want to pay him, but whether or not it's what he wants... It's a lot different. There's there's no information coming out from Mixon's camp that they're not close to a deal, that the deal's not... so So then we don't know if it's different or not. Well, I think this is a no news is good news situation where you're not having the agent leak information to get that player some public perception that he's trying his best to get the deal done. I think it's good news. Uh, more importantly, that the signaling is there. Uh, these two, these are two guys. This is a, a situation where they're not le- like it's not coming out in the media. And I'm more inclined to believe that the hesitation on the deal being complete is because of the current situation we are in in COVID-19. That's possible, but I just will say that back in April, the organization said basically that they were bracing for a holdout if there was no deal reached. So if if he doesn't have a deal, then I think you're going to see a, a hold in, I guess, now and, and not a holdout. 
Well, that's why I think you jumped to the, the May comment from Duke Tobin, who said their number one priority is going to be re-signing Joe Mixon. Yeah, and I guess my hope that maybe it would make it a little bit different than like Dalvin Cook is like, you know, in Minnesota, they've paid the quarterback. So at least maybe you're not, I mean, Burrow's still making a lot of money, but he's not making Kirk Cousins money. So maybe you hope with just more cap space, less tied up in the quarterback, maybe you hope they could just Pedro Mixon with more of a free mind. I don't know. I'm just saying it's out there, out there in the ether, and it's something that we definitely have to keep an eye on, um, in my opinion. So um, from Joe Mixon to AJ Green, who, in my opinion, along with Todd Gurley, is one of the the two or three guys with the widest range of outcomes in all of fantasy football. Didn't play a game last year. He only played nine the year before that. Obviously, last year, we all remember, he injured his ankle on the crappy field that the Bengals should never have been practicing on. And then after that, it just seemed like he just didn't want to play for a crappy team. Um, the fluff is already starting to come out. Jay Gruden, who is the Jaguars offensive coordinator, so I thought it weird that I saw this quote from him. But Jay Gruden thinks that AJ Green will be, quote, the happiest guy in the world with Burrow at QB because Burrow throws great deep ball. And that is per Bengals.com. So again, a little bit weird that another team's offensive coordinator says that, but that is out there. He is consensus wide receiver 29 on fantasy pros rankings. Dalton, what are you going to be watching or monitoring um, as it pertains to AJ Green as training camp unfolds? Well, a couple of things. Uh, first, j- same vein as Joe Mixon. It was reported by the ringer that AJ Green was unhappy with the franchise tag placed on him in July. Uh, he's still a potential holdout concern. I do know the rules with the franchise tag are a little different. Uh, but secondly, the guy has missed 23 contests to foot injuries. I'm going to see if he can get on the practice field and even stay healthy. Uh, mm-hmm. He is probably one of the most injury-concerned players. He's entering his 32-year-old season. Um, I have him slotted pretty low in my rankings. I really think he's a boomer bust <laughs> guy. Uh, you're going to have to have a lot of positive news coming out of training camp. I'm going to have to be able to see him on the field. Uh, but even then, where he's getting drafted, he's not a guy I'm getting a lot of. Yeah, so I think... I don't know if I'd have to see like, you know, AJ Green, he looks great. Like he looks like his old self. I would love to see that. Sure. I think I just want to look, you know, see the Bengals practice report and not see him as limited like every third day, you know, on if he's on like if he basically has a maintenance schedule, then that's a little bit concerning to me. Or I mean, it maybe it's the wise thing to do, but just from we're going to know so little. We're only going to know what the teams are feeding us just with tra- the nature of training camp with COVID this year. So it's going to be really hard to really know how healthy the guy is if he's not out there every day, quite frankly. But, you know, you mentioned it. He is just the ultimate unknown to me. He hasn't played a game since December 2nd, 2018. That That's a very long time for a football player to go between games, um, number one. He said he wants to play just recently, actually. He wants to play four more years. Obviously, a lot of guys probably feel that way, and the bodies just don't let him. So we'll see what happens there. But you're at least happy to hear that with a guy who hasn't wanted to be on the field for the last however long. But at the same time, so here's the thing. I know you mentioned that it's a little high for you. For me, that's about where I have him. And it's just it's going to be a team construction thing for me because at the end of the day, the guy's a Hall of Famer. He's awesome. Like, if he plays... He's AJ Green. Maybe he'll just be great anyway somehow. And you know, when I say great, I don't think like top five, but like maybe he'll be a top 15 wide receiver anyway because he's just that gifted, that special of a football player. But 
again, I could also see a world where he plays like four games and he, you know, he's not even on your roster in week five. So there's just a lot of variables to measure here. I think if I go running back heavy and I'm like staring him down, I actually had this scenario in a mock draft recently. I'm staring him down as like my wide receiver too. I don't think I want to do that. But if he's a guy I can at least get where he's on my bench, I feel a little better about it. Yeah, and I'm pretty much on board with that. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm getting very little shares of him is most of my drafts, I'm hitting running back three times. And when you're looking at even as your third right wide receiver, AJ Green, it's not very tantalizing. It's scary, mm-hmm. especially when you're looking at guys like Marquise Brown. I mean, even Marvin Jones is in that area you can get. Uh, it's just it's difficult to take him. If you're looking for a boomer bust at that area, I would much prefer Will Fuller, who's at least younger and might be able to shake off the injuries a little better and is looking at a better passing situation. Mm-hmm. But altogether, he's he's on one of my he's one of my avoid players unless I go running or wide receiver heavy early on. Yeah. Okay. So on to his counterpart, Tyler Boyd, where I mean Tyler Boyd, he's just been solid the last couple of years. Over a thousand yards, 90 receptions, and five touchdowns last year. That's good for wide receiver 23. Obviously without A.J. Green all of last year, but that is back-to-back 1,000-yard seasons. He was 7th in the NFL in targets, 11th in receptions. Fantasy Pros has him at number 30. So basically, that's people, including me, that's about where I have both of them, saying, I don't know which guy on this team I want. We'll just put them both back-to-back, um, both in kind of a, a mid-wide receiver um, three spot. But I don't know. Tyler Boyd, to me, he's a, he's a high floor low ceiling guy Dalton I don't know how you feel about him well Tyler Boyd is a guy who has gotten everything you need when it comes to efficiency or I'm sorry when it comes to volume and he has not been efficient with it last year he was seventh in the NFL in targets with 148 and he finished eighth in catches with 90 that was good enough to finish within the top 15 of wide receivers and it was close at that what's bad about him is if he's not getting the volume he is averaging 1.65 yards per route run and 7.1 yards per target it's not a good look for a guy he i don't think he has wide receiver one potential oh Um, no i i agree too i don't think he has that potential either and he's getting drafted in an area where it doesn't show um but just relating back to my draft strategy i'm not looking for a guy like him in these rounds he's not very exciting He's this is, just, this is gonna make you laugh, but he reminds me a lot of Jameson Crowder. I was gonna say, yeah, you sound like you're describing Jameson Crowder. Yeah, he, he does, uh, but Jameson Crowder goes a lot later in drafts where he's a good low, like a high floor, low ceiling guy, like you said. Um, mm-hmm. but taking him in the sixth or fifth round in some cases for Boyd, you're not gonna get a lot out of it. Uh, if you're looking for a high ceiling guy, just a brief touch on him, I would just shoot for T. Higgins as a late round dart. Well, throw. I I was gonna ask if either T. Higgins or John Ross are attractive to you as as late round guys. I think but, John Ross has played like 33% of his NFL games. Yeah, uh, I mean he injuries. he had he had the good start last year, then got hurt. But yeah, T. Higgins is obviously the guy who you know he has less baggage at this point, obviously, than John Ross. Yeah, there are some people who thought T. Higgins should have been a first rounder. So if I'm shooting for a high upside, and this is probably only in a best ball draft where I get 22 rounds, I might take T. Higgins as a dart throw. Mm-hmm. So I, I think the only thing I'd add on Boyd is I do think it's possible that the volume goes down and the efficiency goes up with those two guys. He's going to be able to move back into the slot. You've got those two guys on the outside. So 
and obviously a better quarterback. And just real quick on Burrow, we mentioned them. Everybody knows about Joe Burrow. Best season in college football history pretty much last year. 60 touchdowns. He just actually signed his deal earlier this week. Um, just for a baseline of of what his expectations are this year, my bookie has his passing yards and touchdowns at 3,721. He is consensus quarterback 20 on Fantasy Pros. Not really a guy that you're drafting as a starter. Last question on the Bengals before we move on, Dalton. Do you see a world where, probably not where you take a quarterback early, obviously, like top five, six rounds, but if you take a guy like Carson Wentz, like a Matt Stafford in the double-digit rounds, can you see yourself maybe with your last pick just taking Joe Burrow and seeing if you get a QB1 out of a late-round pick? No. uh, I think he's a guy you can get on waivers. More importantly, uh, just as a general draft philosophy i don't usually take two quarterbacks and if i ever were to uh, i think tyrod taylor's the guy i like in the last rounds just with the rushing upside and i just like tyrod taylor as a player too um joe burrow doesn't excite me as a fantasy player he excites me as an nfl player though see i completely disagree with you i think tyrod taylor stinks and um joe burrow to me i almost never i don't think i ever have come out of a draft with two quarterbacks but to me, just that upside. Like, if he pops week one, you're not getting him off waivers. And if you are, you paid 30% of your fab to get him, 20% of your fab. Because if he pops that guy, number one pick, after what he just did at LSU, I mean, it's just going to be, the hype is going to be unreal. And I just think the upside is different than a lot. Like, I'm not saying it's Mahomes' upside, but he could could pass for 4,000 yards this year for sure. Yeah, for me, it just comes down to value at the position. You know, even if he pops and he ends up being QB six or seven, there's not going to be a wide difference between seven and 14 in QB points per game. For sure. Okay, so you mentioned Tyrod Taylor. We're going to talk about the guy he is replacing a little bit next. We move on to the Indianapolis Colts. We have Phillip Rivers and the boys. Last year, they were seven and nine with Jacoby Brissett as the quarterback. Obviously, the late scramble uh, to replace Andrew Luck. So they fought valiantly for that record, quite frankly. Um, They're over under this year, right at nine. Nine wins for the Colts. Dalton, over or under on nine wins for the Colts? This one was a tough one for me. Um, The nine over under end of itself is just like right in the middle of where you see these kind of perennial playoff teams. I'm taking the over, and it's really because I anticipate two easy wins at Jacksonville. I think the Houston overall takes a step down, and I don't really see the Titans repeating last year, and I could see them mm-hmm. splitting in the series. Uh, so you get five wins out of the gate from those teams. Um, but it's definitely not a line I would bet or take home. Yeah, I, I'm going to go with the over as well, and I I think I'll pretty much just leave it at this. I I don't think the Titans are making the playoffs, and I think the Colts have a great chance to be one of potentially two playoff teams out of that division. We will start with easily the most interesting um, conversation when it comes to this team, Jonathan Taylor. So obviously the rookie out of Wisconsin, Every a lot of people had him as the number one running back in the NFL draft. He goes to the Colts in the second round. He is the RB22 uh, in fantasy pros consensus. Obviously we know Marlon Mack is still there, which is the only reason for that price tag. The real question is, Dalton, do you ever think this will be more than a committee for these two guys? Like, do you think Taylor could wrestle away the job at some point? I do. I definitely. And I, I like I've said prior to, I'm not a big uh, Jonathan Taylor drafter this year. I think Jonathan Taylor is an exceptional talent. The issue is 
Marlon Mack was pretty good last season. Uh, The reason the Colts weren't a playoff team last year wasn't because their run game was bad. It was because their pass game wasn't exceptional with Jacoby Brissett. I could see a situation where Marlon Mack underperforms a bit and Jonathan Taylor irks out a better role. Uh, But this is a situation that I see being a a longtime contender. I see it going into weeks, you know, 10 or 11 before we really get to see one guy get in front of the other. I also could see Marlon Mack jumping in front of Jonathan Taylor uh, because he's had concerns with pass blocking in the past. And another issue at Wisconsin in three years, he had 18 fumbles. That comes out to six a year. Uh, So if he doesn't hold on to the rock as a rookie, that's another area you can see him getting dialed back when it comes to offensive snaps. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't know where to start with this. I think that Taylor will win this job. It probably won't happen right away. You might have to deal with a little bit of heartache the first couple of weeks, but eventually I do think it's going to be Taylor and a lot of Taylor. I I think eventually it's going to be a a two to one split. Um, Taylor Mack, and uh, your favorite website, Pro Football Focus, I've seen, has predicted the very same. The thing about Jonathan Taylor, you mentioned the talent, um, and you mentioned Marlon Mack. I think the Taylor pick is a lot more of a reflection on what the Colts think of Taylor than what they think of Mack, because I think Mack is, quite frankly, and we can lump these guys together, obviously, here, an above average, I'd say even good NFL running back. Before last year, I wouldn't have said that, but he really improved a lot last year. He went from bouncing everything to the outside to actually running like a real NFL running back. But Jonathan Taylor, to me, is just a different level of guy. Uh, he's a size-speed freak. He has good footwork. He runs great between the tackles, and he's got a great offensive line to run great between the tackles with in the Indianapolis Colts. Um, in his three seasons of college, he had 3,920 yards um, after contact. He had more than 6,000 total in college. The 3,920 yards after contact are nearly more than 1,000 yards more than the next guy. So, I mean, he's just, I mean, he's Zeke Elliott is kind of what it comes down to. Like, I'm not saying he's just as good, but just when you talk about the type of prospect they are, kind of their profiles as runners, like that's kind of the guy that you see him compared to. He is the best pure runner in the class. And he's another, he's a guy who, He's a big play guy, quite frankly. He's a guy that you could see busting off a lot of big runs. So maybe you get lucky, and maybe when he's splitting carries early on, he still has big weeks because he is just that explosive. Um, If you go RB heavy in the first two rounds, he's one of my favorite third-round picks because then you can get him at, you've got him in the flex. You can probably get receivers a little later on that if if he really struggles early, you can you can handle it, but in my opinion, I think the guy is a flat out league winner. Dalton, do you see that same level of upside if he were to win the job? No, I don't, and I think we also uh, slightly disagree with our take on why he was drafted. Uh, I see it as a smart front office. We have Marlon Mack in his final year of his contract. I think the Colts front office knows they're not going to re-sign him, and they saw a run at running back after the Chiefs took Clyde Edwards Hilaire. J.K. Dobbins and a couple other guys were starting to go off the board. DeAndre Swift was being talked about by the Lions. And so just with the murmurs in the draft, they knew they had to grab a guy. Um, And they happened to get the most talented runner in the draft. I do agree with that. Uh, But I also see this as a year where they're not going to overutilize him. He was a guy who had so many touches in college that you have to be at least slightly concerned about his injury profile when you put that many miles on him. 
Uh, but more importantly, if I'm taking a back uh, in that area where he's going, you also have guys like Devin Singletary and Raheem Mostert going. I am preferable to either of those players over Jonathan Taylor. I think uh, Raheem Mostert. You take, you take Raheem Mostert over Jonathan Taylor? Absolutely. I think he's that, in a bet. That, that sounds like a bet. Johnny, where are you at? Don, are you okay? <laughs> Look, they're, they're ranked right next to each other in fantasy pros, and Raheem Mostert is a guy who's shown he can do it. He's going to probably come out as the RB1A in a great running off scheme and in an offense that's going to also be able to pass the ball. So I will take a bet that Raheem Mostert finishes above Jonathan Taylor in fantasy points at the end of the season. Yep. Oh and, 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 and again, God. and again, this is total points. You know, if the guy gets hurt, that's too bad. So I, yeah, I feel very good about betting that. Oh my, that, that I literally Taylor. don't even know what to say. Like, I wish this was like video recorded. Cause I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm confused on, I <laughs> look in the eight weeks. Mostert took over as the lead back <sighs> in San Francisco. He was second in points per game to only Christian McCaffrey. The guy is an absolute monster. The only concern there is the same concern you're facing in Indianapolis in that you're going to have them both in committees, but at least Mostert is starting out as the 1A, and I would say that Jonathan Taylor is starting out in the 1B, and I would say that Mostert has more receiving upside than Jonathan Taylor. Okay, yeah, I, I, I'm going to just say I disagree with almost all of what you just said. I think Mostert... I think about any running most running backs in the NFL could do what he did behind that offensive line. If you just go back, if you watch some of his touchdown runs, some of his highlights, he just ran straight and he ran fast. There's a lot of guys who can run straight and can run fast. So I, I don't, don't think I don't disagree, but I think that the Kyle Shanahan offense is more is better for running backs than we have in Indianapolis where they well, just that okay, that's fine, but I just it, I just think it's weird because we just talked about him and I think we've I feel like people are starting to maybe come around on Tevin Coleman being a value if he's the one B there. So, okay, we don't have to get off on that tangent, but all right, I feel great about that bet. Well, Johnny's got that down. Okay, um, Marlon Mack, just to hit on him real quick, last year I mentioned that he was good last year. He had more than 1,000 yards. He only had 14 receptions, so he's not the guy. I mean, Naheem, Naheem Hines is the guy as far as receiving back there. Marlon Mack, that was his first 1,000-yard season. He was the RB20 last year being drafted as the RB36, or being ranked that way, I should say, by fantasy pros. So I guess the question is, and I think I maybe know your answer based on this conversation so far, does Marlon Mack have staying power for the entire season for you, or is he just kind of that veteran guy who he fades after the the early portion? Uh, As far as draft-wise for a fantasy team that I would own, I would not draft Marlon Mack, but I also wouldn't draft Jonathan Taylor. he is in the same range as Tevin Coleman, which is kind of ironic considering that the 1A, 1B situation is really working out there. But he's also in the same range as J.K. Dobbins, who's another player I like drafting later in rounds. But as far as being a thorn in a fantasy football player's side, yes, Marlon Mack has staying power. Um, and more importantly, uh, even if Jonathan Taylor were to eat into a lot of his work, uh, 95% of the snaps Mack played were rushes. Uh, so I, I just really don't see a receiving upside for Taylor. I really see these two splitting even a 60-40 split uh, in Marlon Mack's last season. I think the Colts are going to get everything they can out of that gas tank before they let him walk in free agency at the end of this year. Yeah, I'm going to say I disagree. I think Mack is kind of classic. Um, 
early season guy. If you take him where he's ranked, you're going to be happy early in the season. And then all of a sudden you're not going to be able to trade him. You're going to be stuck with him, in my opinion, unless you just want to cut bait. Um, on Jonathan Taylor, real quick before we move on, I do just want to mention the Colts didn't just uh, take him because he was there. They traded up for him, so they clearly targeted him, liked him, um, wanted him uh, on their team, I think. And I also just would like to say that he is the ultimate league-winning pick. Dalton, I wish you could bring yourself to make these kinds of picks. If we're doing a league-winning pick, it's J.K. Dobbins. Uh, he's in a much better running situation with a run-first offense. Uh, if we're doing league winners, I think J.K. Dobbins is the league winning running back. Well, he, he is he, he is he is a league winning running back, but I don't know about the. Okay, um, let's move on to some of the pass catchers. We mentioned Naheem Hines. I, I don't really want to talk about him. He he's the pass catcher. You're never going to start him unless you're in a desperate situation. And maybe if um, somehow both of those guys are out of the picture for a week or two. He's a, a top 20 guy, but there's not much to say about him. T.Y. Hilton, I think, is an interesting conversation. Last year, obviously, he was pretty banged up. 45 receptions for 501 yards and five touchdowns. Career low, 50 yards per game. Wide receiver 57 last year, and again, he was pretty banged up. Only played like 10 games, 11 games. And this is also, obviously, with Jacoby Brissett at quarterback. So there is just a lot going on there. They had the, the scramble with Andrew Luck, like I said. The offensive coordinator recently gave an interview where he he pretty much predicted a, a bounce back season, which again, the, at least it's something positive. You you like to hear that as opposed to nothing, I suppose. And we're just really going to have to decide how much we can trust these coaches with with these things, quite frankly, without the media really being able to see how guys are being used, how they look in training camp. But I'm just curious how you feel about Ty heading into this season. And if he's a guy you can see yourself ending up with. T.Y. is interesting, and he kind of flows from the A.J. Green conversation we had earlier, where he's a guy that has wide receiver one upside, but he profiles as a big risk injury. The difference is for T.Y., it's not been the same injury like A.J. Green had with the foot. Over his last 16, and I want to reference this as his healthy games, he had a stat line that was 77 receptions, 1,129 yards, and six touchdowns. The The big difference maker here is Phillip Rivers, and it hurts to look at it this way, but T.Y. Hilton makes a lot of his money over the top of defenses, and Phillip Rivers does not make his money over the top of defenses. You know, he had a seven-year low last season in adjusted yards per attempt at 7.1. So unless there's a significant change in where T.Y. Hilton is getting his targets and the offense adapts to a new quarterback, I'm not feeling great about drafting him at his current ADP uh, at about 54 overall. Uh, he kind of stands right next to Keenan Allen and Stefan Diggs. Uh, if I'm really looking for a deep threat profile, it, I might take Stefan Diggs, who is a quarterback who says YOLO and throws the ball at him six times a game, even if four of those throws are 10 yards above the guy's head. Yeah. So just in general, I've never been a TY guy. Um, and at general in general at receiver, I've never been real big on drafting that type of guy, the TY Hilton, the Deshaun Jackson, the Will Fuller. I just don't really end up with those guys on my team. I'd rather take those shots at running back and have a safer floor at receiver quite frankly. You mentioned the deep ball with Rivers. It's actually funny. So yeah, the deep ball, not his, you know, not his thing. He kind of looks like his arm is toast a little bit, but 
his deep ball stats actually from last year aren't bad. And it's mainly because he threw a lot of them and he probably threw a lot of interceptions on a lot of them, but he also, he ranked fourth in deep ball attempts and he, but he completed the most deep ball passes in the NFL last season at 27 by on the contrary, T Y Hilton only saw four catchable passes that were 20 yards or more down the field. His average depth of target fell um, from 12.6 the previous two seasons to 10.1 last year. So at least yeah, it may not be great, but it's a definite upgrade. And before we move off the Colts, I did just want to mention Michael Pittman, or I guess Dalton, if you have a favorite wide receiver to there other than him, you can mention him. But to me, Pittman, he's kind of that perfect big-bodied receiver, red zone threat. He complements Hilton the best just with the way he plays and kind of what you would figure that team needs and then of course jack doyle to me he's a streaming tight end and that's it but any particular receiver your favorite out of that group of uh pitman uh zach pascal and uh paris gamble well uh i agree with your take of pitman he's a good compliment he's a big physical guy i think since river's playing he's a good comp for mike williams uh, but actually my favorite receiver just because the value you can get him at is Paris Campbell. He didn't play a lot of games last season because he had a hamstring injury one week. Then his hand got broken in week nine and then his foot got injured in week 14. Uh, he's a guy who'd never had an injury coming into the NFL kind of got hit all at once, uh, regressed to the mean. Uh, but he's a player who coming into the season, Frank Wright said, you're going to see a lot of Paris Campbell out of the slot. He's fast. His spark profile is off the charts. He's a guy who I think is worth investing in if you're taking a late-round dart throw in an offense that's probably going to be run first. Uh, but at the end of the day, all three receivers in this offense are guys I don't really take a lot of, um, and that's mostly because I think Phillip Rivers, you know, he had a 12-year pass, uh, his lowest passer rating in 12 years at 88.5 last year. It's just not some. It's not an offense I see a majority of their their weapons being utilized their fullest extent. They're probably going to run the ball first, and they're probably going to take a lot of dink and dunk passes down the field and rely heavily on their defense to win them games. Mm -hmm. And obviously college and NFL is a lot different, but just one thing on Paris Campbell, on on an Ohio State team with uh, Terry McLaurin, Paris Campbell was the best wide receiver on that team. The pedigree is there. He is worth taking a a chance on and just kind of hoping he is what he was drafted to be, quite frankly. But okay, I think we've talked enough about about Phillip and the boys, Phillip and the Colts. Uh, For today, the last team, and to me, easily the most interesting team of of this batch, the Denver Broncos. Seven and nine last season. Obviously, that's with Joe Flacco to start. And then Drew Locke, they had a nice little finish um, running the ball and, and throwing sparingly with Drew Locke. They're over under for 2020 sits at seven and a half and this is probably one we disagree on i'm gonna guess the dalton over or under seven and a half wins well i have a standing bet with league mate brian clark that they're gonna (laughs) hit the under um i know you don't like this but based on opponent win totals the broncos have the fifth toughest schedule in the nfl uh drew lock is somebody who i think is a little bit of fool's gold and we can get into that a little bit Later on, I think their offensive line made a few improvements. I think their defense takes a few steps back. And a lot of what we're relying on for them this year is that Vic Fangio is just an offense or a defensive genius. And most importantly, I think I see them as the worst team in the AFC West. I see the Raiders wow. as a as the third place team. And I actually see the Chargers as the second place team. Uh, <laughs> I think 
The Chargers do have a great defense, but I think a lot of the uh, value that's being placed in Denver is because they did have an amazing draft, and I think they are a good team for years to come. I do not believe that this season is the season that their their rookies really put it together and they have a great year. Well, okay, I don't think they'd have to quote unquote really put it together to hit this over. I am going to take the over. I'd say eight or nine wins. So I'm not saying like they're going to go 10 and six. Like I've seen some people or like I've even seen a little bit. Like I think I've seen them predicted to win the AFC West by one or two folks out there. Looking at you, Cowherd. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Probably Colin Cowherd. Um, but I think they're going to be scratching for a playoff berth. I like what they did at the end of last season. You bring in Melvin Gordon, who I think is a good player. You still have Philip Lindsay. I like all their weapons in the passing game, whether it's the guys they brought in or the guys they return in, in Sutton and Noah Fant. You mentioned the defense. Obviously, they're going to fall off a little bit. They do still have some players, and they have a good defensive coach. So I don't think they're going to be like a bottom five. They aren't going to be great, but they're not going to be like a terrible defense, in my opinion. Johnny, I'm curious um, your take on this over-under and where you see them in the division. I, I see them as probably the, the second best team in, in the division. I think that they'll hit the under. I think they're probably going to be scratching on six or seven wins. Uh, I, I do think they're probably the third best team, maybe second. I guess you can intertwine it with the Chargers. But I do, I do think the Broncos would probably finish with like seven. So I'll, I'll bet on the under if I were to play some money on it. Obviously different seasons. And you mentioned it, Dalton, with the strength of schedule. I don't like doing the strength of schedule thing because every year in the NFL is so different. But what I will say is they were seven and nine last year with Joe Flacco at quarterback and also they lost um quite a few close games early on the bears game comes to mind where trubisky gets the timeout called with probably 0.01 on the clock and the bears made a game-winning field goal for the first time in like 85 years so you had a couple of those instances some bad luck games early on we'll see what happens there a lot of intriguing fantasy options on this team uh we'll start with melvin gordon the guy they brought in for uh, two years 16 million dollars 16 million dollars i don't know if that was clear enough um last year obviously he had the holdout didn't play the whole year 162 carries for over 600 yards and eight touchdowns that's in 12 games and then 42 for 296 and one touchdown through the air still on pace for under 1000 yards even under 900 yards actually if that if that's parade over 16 games obviously his share with austin eckler was much bigger than in years past so that's part of it he was the rb 23 17th in points per game and 17th is about right where he's ranked right now he is 18 in the fantasy pros consensus that is sandwiched between chris carson and james connor two of dalton's favorites dalton i'm just curious how you kind of feel about melvin gordon coming into the season and how you feel about the situation that he's going to be in where he will have to i don't know if i want to say fight for the job but compete for the job with a guy in philip Lindsay who is coming off back-to-back thousand yard rushing seasons well first i just want to say uh my heart kind of goes out to philip Lindsay. the guy was an undrafted free agent and broke out his rookie season to have a great thousand yard year and then the next year, uh, the Broncos were like, well, Royce Freeman's definitely going to get a lot of touches too. And Devin Booker's going to get some passing down work because we don't believe <laughs> you're a three down bag. And after repeating a thousand yard season, they bring in Melvin Gordon, essentially saying, we still don't believe you're the guy, uh, which is quite interesting. At the end of the day, 
However, um, when it comes to Melvin Gordon, my question uh, that I'm not seeing asked a lot is what changed? You know, last season, if you take his total game stats, uh, he was on pace for 62 catches, 1,518 total yards, and 14 touchdowns, which is a great season for a fantasy running back. Uh, he comes into a better offensive line. Last year, the Chargers had a horrible offensive line. Mike Munchak is the offensive line coach in Denver, who he is a good offensive line coach. Um, they kept most of their guys. They are working with a new center in Lloyd Cushenberry. Uh, you know, before the holdout concerns last year, Melvin Gordon was a top, you know, 15, 16 pick. Yeah, he's, that, been a, he's been a high second round, late first round pick the last couple of years until the holdout. And so that really, and maybe you can set, shed some light on this, but I'm not sure what changed to the fantasy community's perspective uh, to drop Melvin Gordon this low when he's still producing. He's still one of the most elusive backs at getting yards after contact in the NFL, and he's definitely in a run-first offense that looks, at least on paper, to be exciting enough to give him some opportunity. Well, okay. I think a few things. I think, number one, Melvin Gordon, to me, has always been kind of undervalued by the fantasy community anyway. And I think a lot of that is so many people care so much about yards per carry and your efficiency. And he's never been a high yards per carry guy. There's a, probably a lot of reasons for that. He's never been a real big play guy, quite frankly. And so I think people can just box score hunt a little bit and, and see some of that stuff. And and uh, maybe think he's worse than he is. I think he's a very good player. I think maybe also part of it is just the unknown of a new situation. Um, not that I think Philip Lindsay is going to eat into his workload a little bit, but I think you're going to see three running backs uh, on the field in Denver, and we'll get into that a little bit as we as we talk about Lindsay. I do just want to say with Gordon, I feel very comfortable with him. You know about where he's ranked, and he is one of those guys like a Le'Veon Bell, Chris Carson even a James Conner, where if you go running back receiver, you feel great about, not great maybe, but you feel pretty darn good. You feel safe with that guy as your RB2, as your third round pick. And it's funny, as I was typing this, these notes I wrote, whether it's Jonathan Taylor or CEH, you know, any of these rookies you take, now CEH is out of the question. But if you have Jonathan Taylor, you have like a guy like, you know, DeAndre Swift, like some of those high risk guys, like he's a guy that you feel good about kind of pairing with, with some of those guys, I think. Um, but a, as for Philip Lindsay, so let's kind of get into him a little bit. As I mentioned, topped a thousand yards last season. That was on 224 carries, just over a thousand yards, only 35 receptions for 196 through the air, back to back thousand yard seasons. Gordon has not done that the last two seasons, actually. Um, injuries, holdout, whatever. Um, the thing that scares me about Philip Lindsay is he's not really a third down back that complements um, Melvin Gordon the way like an Austin Eckler before Eckler turned into what he was last year. He he's very small, but he runs fierce. I mean, he's a fierce between the tackles runner. He's a good runner, but I just worry that he's going to kind of get lost in that situation a little bit because I mean, Gordon clearly is the better player to me, better runner, and he's also a much I think he's a better pass catcher and he's going to get more opportunity um, because I think the main reason why Lindsay doesn't get the opportunities as a pass catcher is because they don't trust him as a blocker. And that's why I think you'll see maybe some Royce Freeman sprinkled in there on third down. It's not going to be a three head monster, but I, I don't see Lindsay getting much in the passing game. He's going to lose a ton in the rushing game. I mean, I see this as kind of a, a two to one Gordon 
um, as the lead guy kind of workload. Dalton, there's guys like Carrion Johnson, Marlon Mack, Tariq Cohen, Daryl Henderson, Zach Moss, Tevin Coleman, all ranked after Philip Lindsay. Um, how do you feel about Philip Lindsay, where he's ranked uh, ahead of all those guys? Well, you really hit on it in that it's so difficult because you can see a good two-back system unfolding like we did in Los Angeles in the second part of last year between Melvin Gordon and Austin Eckler. But Philip Lindsay profiles as a down-the-hill speed runner who gets in the open and makes guys miss. Yeah, Gordon would have to be the the passing down guy in that. Exactly. In that. Um, and I don't see that happening. You don't sign a guy to the eighth highest paid running back contract in the NFL to not use him. Uh, more importantly, they don't have a real pass catcher on their 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 uh, roster. Royce yeah, because it, it's not like Royce Freeman has some great route tree. It's literally because they trust him to block, and so they'll be like, okay, go waddle out five yards that way, and we'll dump it off to you sometimes. Yeah, I mean, we could see Jeff Horman getting more catches than Royce <laughs> Freeman to end it. Uh, but so really, if there's anybody who's going to win this backfield, it's Melvin Gordon because he is a pass catcher. His time in uh, Los Angeles slash San Diego he didn't get a great opportunity to share, show that, but that was because Austin Eckler is one of the most prominent pass catchers in the NFL when it comes out of the backfield. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I feel for Philip Lindsay, but I really think he's a guy who's just a handcuff. If you're in the realm of taking him and you see a carry on Johnson, you'd probably rather have carry on Johnson because I mm-hmm. think he has a more clear path to a workload. Come to- to- totally agree. I think Lindsay is a very good real life player, but I think all he really is going to be without injury obviously is kind of that perfect perfect complimentary like the change of pace guy i should say not really complimentary the change of pace guy that you know you give maybe every third carry to and he's more of a big play guy than melvin gordon so he kind of adds that dimension too but i don't really see a world where he scratches out enough work to be very fantasy relevant without injury i agree um at the end of the day he's probably one of the guys i'm not taking the late rounds because he's a you have to hope for a lot of things to fall his way before he gets any work. Yep, it's sad because I really like him as a player, but we should move on to some of the pass catchers here. There's a couple I want to talk about. First being Cortland Sutton. Uh, the guy was really one of the breakout stars in fantasy football last year. 72 receptions, just over 1,100 yards, only six touchdowns, which if you're looking for a pro Cortland Sutton argument, big, tall guy, fast guy kind of a Kenny Galladay light a little bit. You'd expect those touchdowns could maybe go up. He was the wide receiver 19 last year. He's being ranked as the wide receiver 20 on fantasy pros. He had the seventh largest target share among all receivers. Now, obviously, the Broncos add some guys. Jerry Judy in the first round, KJ Hamler in the second. You bring Noah Fant back again, and then you know you have strong guys at running back. So you'd think maybe Denver would be looking to shift away from the run-heavy approach, um, just given all these receivers, it'd at least be more of a 50-50. But I'm curious, Dalton, how you feel about Cortland Sutton. If you're worried about, I don't like the too many mouths to feed argument, but if the offense isn't great, I think it's a real thing. So just what, do you, what are your thoughts on this guy during the season? Well, when it comes down to it, even if there is a too many mouths to feed situation developing, I think it's going to come down to KJ Hamler and Jerry Judy. Cortland Sutton is a actual good receiver in the NFL. He wasn't just the product of volume last season. He was 19th in the NFL in receiving yards, and he did that with the likes of Joe Flacco for the majority of that. Um, He was 12th in yards per route run, which means he was very efficient with the routes he was running and the looks he was getting. 
Uh, more importantly, he's a big guy who can get his looks when he needs them. He's good at creating separation. Pro Football Focus rated him as the 12th best wide receiver at getting yards between him and the DB. Uh, and at the end of the day, when it comes down to my concerns for wide receivers on this offense, it really comes down to Drew Locke. Um, we can jump into him later, but I don't trust the guy as a quarterback. But as far as Cortland Sutton goes at wide receiver at 19, I think he's a guy that could impress people and be a top 12 wide receiver to end the season because of his talent and skill. I have him at 14 right now. That's why I have him in my initial ranks. I think I'm going to end up moving him down a little bit. I might get both Rams guys ahead of him, and I might hop Tyler Lockett up there just ahead of him as well. But I again, I like the player. I love Kenny Galladay, so it's no surprise I like this guy because I think they're pretty similar with Sutton just being a little bit of a lesser version, quite frankly. He um, ranked top 16 in yards per catch each of his first two seasons. I'm not going to say that I'm all in on Locke or anything like that, but I do think he's going to have a pretty good season. And I think Sutton is still the best receiver on this roster, but this leads me into the next guy in Jerry Judy. Um, Dalton, I just before I talk about this guy, I want to know what you think because I think this guy could be incredible someday in the NFL. What he is this year is unclear, but this guy, first round pick, a stud at Alabama. I don't care what the Raiders say, is the best receiver in the draft. Um, what do you think about Jerry Judy coming into this year? Um, I think Jerry Judy was the best wide receiver by a large margin. I was surprised he wasn't taken first overall uh, as far as wide receivers go. In addition, Jerry Judy can do anything. He lined up at the perimeter, at the slot. He played everywhere at Alabama, and he showed he could catch everywhere at Alabama. I agree with Pro Football Focus's comparison that he's an Odell Beckham Amari Cooper type player. He well, run- I, I, I like the Stefan Diggs comp. I've seen a little bit of that too. And obviously, you've got um, Shermer um, there as well now too. Yeah, and Pat Shermer is going to coach him up. The unfortunate thing for fantasy owners who love Jerry Judy is that he landed on a team with an alpha wide receiver already. Mm -hmm. You know, this is a team that has a clear cut number one guy who knows the playbook in and out and who's shown he can profile well against number one DBs. (laughs) Um, Jerry Judy, if he plays out of the slot most of his rookie season, which I've seen some reports out of uh, the Broncos camp saying he's going to, he's going to be a smash at his fantasy value. I think his ADP puts him around wide receiver 51 um he's somebody who could easily outperform that at the same time kj hamler played the majority of his work on the outside um so if the broncos are really going to run three wide receiver sets like they've indicated kj hamler and Cortland sutton are going to be the x and the y and you're going to have jerry judy running out of the slot which everybody knows is a fantasy gold mine and this is one of those fun late round dart throws Uh, especially when you know Drew Locke has one of the lowest adjusted yards per attempt. I could see Jerry Judy getting peppered in targets and having 10-plus target games. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I knew we were going to be going a little bit long on the Broncos, so that's okay. Um, There's a lot to talk about with this team, a lot of guys. So I think it's just interesting to note, Elway actually today on on a Zoom press conference did did say that expectations are tempered for the offense. He doesn't expect with no offseason that they'll come out hitting on on all cylinders. And I think his exact quote is it's going to be a slow build. And I think that kind of, to me, perfectly encapsulates what I think about Judy specifically. He's a guy that you're going to draft him. You're probably not going to do anything with him for four five, six weeks. But, you know, if Sutton gets hurt, if something happens there, um, obviously, yes. But just in general, 
you could, in my opinion, get to a situation where you take a guy as your 50th wide receiver off the board and maybe you feel comfortable starting him by the time week seven, eight, nine, ten rolls around. I, I like, you know, the, the Odell, Stefan Diggs, all those names getting thrown around. I mean, that just shows how special of a talent this guy is, in my opinion. And I'm not saying he's going to overtake Sutton because I think Sutton is awesome. And this is a tough year for a rookie receiver to come in and take control of a team. But this guy has a lot of upside. If you want a late round dart throw, if you want a potential league winner at the receiver position, this is your guy. Like this is your guy, I think. Yeah, I agree. Um, especially in best ball drafts. I think he's a guy that you can just let sit there and see what happens with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but another interesting player at the end of the day, if Drew Locke really learns to throw the ball downfield, could be KJ Hamler, who had 17 yards per uh, pass caught at Penn. He's another explosive guy. The Broncos really went all in, and this is the year for them to prove their offense is worthwhile. So they mm-hmm. are an interesting team to watch. Yeah, I, I think probably what you'll see out of him is maybe probably not as good of production, but it's kind of like the Michael Hardman thing, right? Where it's like the guy's explosive, he'll make great plays, but like you can never start him in fantasy because he's just not, as far as how that packing order goes, you've got the running backs, you've got um, Cortland Sutton, you've got Jerry Judy, and then you've got the next guy we're going to talk about here and Noah Fant. Noah Fant, last year, 40 receptions, 562 yards, just three touchdowns um, for the rookie last year. He was tight end 16. And I think what you like about that is it wasn't as if he just had some, it's not a Tyler Higby situation where like the guy went crazy to end the season and he kind of overinflated his numbers. He was just kind of that guy all year with a couple of big games sprinkled in. We both have him inside of our top 10. We all know about the leap that rookie tight ends make in their second years, or at least generally make if they are good players because of the adjustment period. Um, when it comes to being a tight end in the NFL Dalton. So I think we both agree that he can make that leap. We both have him ranked as such. Can you tell me why you like Noah Fant so much? Well, I think uh, despite all the Jerry Judy love we just gave, he's probably the number two option in this offense in part, just because it's going to take a little bit of time to adjust to that offense and we're shortening the training season. Um, But he had the fifth most receiving yards for a rookie ever. You know, he had 592. That's impressive. To end the season last year, he had 47.1 yards per game. Uh, that was in the second half. He's very talented. And I do want to say that when you look at ADP, something that I think is really disrespectful is that <laughs> TJ Hawkinson and Noah Fant are going in the same range as Mike Gusecki when both Hawkinson and Fant were profiled as some of the most athletic tight ends at the draft. And Mike Gusecki, I don't necessarily believe, is anywhere near as athletic or has shown the same bursts of yeah, energy. I- I feel like a lot of people have these guys. I mean, I mentioned Fant was tight end 16. I feel like I've seen him ranked lower than that, lower than yeah. he finished last year. I feel like I've seen him ranked lower than that, which to me, I mean, you talk about the types of tight ends that, at least in my opinion, you want to take a chance on in a draft. It's a guy like this. He has a pedigree. He was never a huge producer at Iowa in large part because, number one, he had Hawkinson playing with him, so he had the competition there. And number two, he did just kind of struggle in general there a little bit because he's not a great run blocker. So I, there was just there are some situations there that develop where he wasn't on the field as much as he maybe could have been. And I think in a lot of fans' opinions, there should have been. And so I think he is a guy who's we've never really seen the big production on any level. But if you're gonna bet on somebody, 
I'm going to bet on a guy who is 6'4", 250 pounds, runs a 4'5", 40, has a 39.5-inch vertical, and was a first-round draft pick as a tight end. I just think the guy's a freak. And again, I miss me with the Jack Doyle, um, like those types of guys, Eric Ebron as your tight end 12, 13, like drafting those guys. Like I'm taking this guy. Sorry. Like I, I just am. I'm the upside to me is way higher than those guys. Yeah. Athletically, he's a freak. Uh, he only had one game last year with more than, well, he had two games, with more than five targets. He had nine once and 10 once. Uh, but even then, he was just playing with such poor quarterbacking. He was mm-hmm. asked to block a lot more last year, and he did it effectively. So I think he proved he can be an NFL quality yeah. starter. And then more importantly, now you get the interesting route tree concepts that hopefully come out of Vic Fangio not play calling the offense mm-hmm. this year. Okay, so we've gone long on these guys. I just want to ask one question just with Drew Locke. What, if anything, are you going to be following closely with him? And I want to preface this by by saying, I think that Elway quote about the offense, maybe not kind of tempering down expectations a little bit, to me, that's not a negative, but it's kind of a reminder, kind of a slap of reality. Like, you have to remember, like, settle down a little bit. This is really his first full season as the guy. Just because he showed promise last year does not mean the jump is automatically coming. And improvement, it's not linear. Like, just because he was this last year doesn't mean he's going to make this exact jump. I mean, just think back to Baker Mayfield. You know, that that's all I really wanted to say about that. Dalton, what are you following closely with this guy? I think it starts to start the season if Drew Locke can even hold on to the ball. In five games <laughs> last year, the guy had six turnovers, three picks, three fumbles. And then secondly, I need to see that he can push the ball downfield. If you exclude the Texans game, who had the worst pass defense since the only game he cleared 300 yards, his adjusted yards per average is under five yards. He had one game against Detroit where he had 33 pass attempts, a 75% completion percentage, and had 192 yards. 25 throws for under 200 yards. If you're going to be an NFL starting quarterback, you have to be able to push the ball downfield occasionally. Maybe it was part of the offensive line issues they had last year, and maybe it was a lack of weapons, and he has both of those now. So we'll really see it. But Drew Locke has to show me early on he's willing to take those chances and not play safe, and then he has to control the ball and not fumble and throw pick. So, yeah, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. What I will say is that they really babied him last year, and I don't know if that's because of – the caliber of player he is or if that just was always going to be their philosophy you remember the guy gets hurt um comes back and they waited until the perfect opponent came along basically they waited a couple more weeks to put him out there they were playing wasn't it kyle allen well i think it was kevin hogan kevin hogan asked i can't remember which no-name quarterback it was so they they basically babied him as much as you can baby a guy while still playing him in the first season. So just interested to see how that develops. Dalton, do you have any uh, final thoughts on this? Uh, I'm not a big Drew Locke fan. I don't (laughs) think he succeeds in the NFL. Uh, You know, I looked up last year. He was actually in a, in a quarterback battle between him, Brett Ripon and Kevin Hogan. There were a lot of comments coming out of training camp that they didn't know who was going to be the backup. And overall, I think this entire offense hinges on Drew Locke becoming a successful NFL quarterback. And I would be surprised if he has a better season than the likes of Joe Burrow. I'm I'm just 
you you are gambling a lot when you take players in this offense. I really don't think other than Melvin Gordon and Cortland Sutton, I'm taking a lot of guys with a lot of excitement. Um, but Drew Locke is the guy to watch, and he's just not somebody I think is an NFL caliber player. Okay, well, we will see. He at least has the talent around him to prove otherwise. We will see what happens. Be interesting to follow. And that is going to do it for us on episode six of the Half Point Per Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Half Point Per Pod. Our show is available anywhere you listen to podcasts, most notably, again, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Five-star reviews would be appreciated on iTunes. Thank you guys so much for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon.